This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Back here in New York City, sitting here with New York. And you're not a New York City native, right? Adjacent. I grew up in the suburbs. Scarsdale says yeah, on Wikipedia. Exactly. I do all my Wikipedia research now. That's great. <laughs> Very accurate, I'm sure. You're, you're Don Hewitt's great nephew. Great nephew. Don Hewitt was the executive producer of 60 Minutes. Okay, now I get that out of the way. Because now every podcast guest I have on Wikipedia tells me is related to someone famous. Someone sure. got somewhere somehow, right? Rob Fishman, you're famous for your own yeah. exploits. I've been trying to pave my own path. <laughs> Three-time entrepreneur? Yeah, this is my third company. Currently running? Brat. We'll talk about what Brad is. We'll talk about your last company. We'll talk about your first company. We'll talk about why you started making companies on your own. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, I've written about you a bunch. Yes. And I, I will say the Wikipedia thing did, did give me pause because it says you're 32. I'll be 33 in two weeks. So. so when I first met you and you're in Chinatown, it's like 2012, 2013? I was 14. You're 14. You're running your second company. Yes. I got to pick up the pace. Uh, let's talk about what Brad is first, and then we can go backwards. So you, here's how I would describe Brad. You tell me where, where I'm wrong. So I normally I ask the guests, you tell me what the company is, and then I tell them why they're making up an explanation. <laughs> we'll reverse it. Uh, you want to make media for young people, teens, tweens, primarily young girls. Young women, yep. Young women. Uh, Low-cost video. You've got a studio out in L.A. Uh, you have an advantage, you think, over competitors because you understand the influencer world. And you can make uh, video efficiently. I won't say that instead of cheap. Yeah. I mean, that's... Full uh, stop, right? You should come work for us. Yeah. <laughs> You're looking <laughs> yeah. for a PR guy. Exactly. No, I mean, we are, you know, in, in some ways a TV network. You know, I grew up watching the WB and... Every night I'd watch Dawson's Creek or Buffy or Roswell, and our biggest observation was that was missing from the market, and for whatever reason, there's still 60 or $70 billion being spent on television advertising. You aspire to have a brand that is the next WB. WB, MTV, these are all CW. touchstones for us. Right. Yeah. But there are a million people making video and other content aimed at, at this market, right? And yes have and have no. been for decades, right? Um, so you're not the only one there. You're not the only one who said, hey, I bet I bet 12-year-old girls would be a good market for me to target. Um, so what, what's your secret sauce? So there, there's a few things. I mean, first of all, I, I actually think we are one of a very few people making programming for this generation. A lot of people are making videos, but I think that there's a big distinction between, you know, taking a clip of Donald Trump and putting some text over it versus producing a TV show. Yeah. And sure, TV shows can live in different places today, and in our case, they're on, you know, YouTube and Amazon, but uh, I don't think that there are a lot of people making programming or videos for this generation. I think there's a white space, but, uh, you know, can, can talk about that or can answer your second question. Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just thinking. So I went and saw your, your, your facility facilities yeah. uh, in December, and I thought, oh, this is familiar. This looks like BuzzFeed at, at one point. This looks like Maker Studios at mm -hmm. one point. Um, I'm sure if I'd gone back 10 years earlier and seen someone else targeting awesomeness, cheapish or, yep. video. And, and again, it's, it's a, I think it says 10,000 square foot studio, which sounds really grand, but really it's a yeah, warehouse mm -hmm. cordoned off into a couple different sections. You've got your own little construction part so you can make sets. You've got some dresses. Yep. Pretty, pretty it's, it's sort of standard stuff, and it allows you to make video efficiently and cheaply, but that alone isn't enough to make this totally work. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a, a few in, important points there. And, and most of all is that we're an IP company, not a video company. And so our fans are religiously tuning into shows like Chicken Girls and Total Eclipse and our newest hit show, Zoe Valentine. We have a new show called On the Ropes with Ryan Garcia, who's a popular real-life boxer who just fought at Madison Square Garden. Uh, we have our Spring Break movie coming out in five minutes called Spring Breakaway. And 
you know, to touch on some of the points you mentioned, those shows do feature uh, Gen Z talent with huge audiences that come into those pieces of programming. We do film efficiently, to borrow your word. I mean, that still involves 20, 30-person crews and real productions, but compared to Hollywood standards, we're, you know, pennies on the dollar. But ultimately, we're investing in shows that our audience tunes into every week. And I think that that's actually the most salient point and the most unique when you look at kind not of Not just a random media. thing that showed up in Facebook one day. Yeah, we don't, like, we, our Facebook traffic is not non-existent. It's, you know, we're Instagram, we're YouTube, we're growing on Snap, but we're, we're destination appointment viewing. And I think that that's really gotten lost from the conversation in the last 10 years. Everyone's kind of drifted into this, like, content well of, you know, who posted first, who gets the scoop, and less of, like, let's watch This Is Us tonight. We're looking forward to it. Right. Although the the content well thing, people are sort of moving back from that, right? Because it turns out that just putting stuff on Facebook doesn't work as a business. I think they are moving back for that. But when I think about the, the most, you know, um, highly valued digital media companies out there, and I say, hey, Peter, what's their most popular show? I don't, I mean... I don't. I can't name one. It's uh, gonna be a long pause. Yeah, but that's interesting. If I say, if I said to you ten years ago, what's the most popular show on NBC right now, or CBS, you know, they were must see yeah. TV. They were a slate of shows that people actually affirmatively cared about, and that's been our ambition for the beginning, not to just kind of build an audience through blind video creation. So again. I don't want to go over and over, but you're not the first person to show up in Hollywood or anywhere else and say, I've got this idea. I see this market here. Um, What got you to Hollywood? You're based in New York initially. That's where I met you. It's fun to go to L.A., right? But, But what made you think, I want to go here and make this thing now? Yeah, so our last company, which, you know, we've talked about a bunch called Niche, which was acquired by Twitter in 2015, did sort of the marketing and advertising side of this business to some extent, which is we had a network of digital talent and brands came in and packaged, you know, big campaigns to run across these networks. And it was incredible to me how quickly Vine, Instagram, Snapchat were able to cultivate these massive uh, audiences of young people and how hungry brands were to reach them. And, you know, I looked at those audiences, which were developed kind of in a Silicon Valley way through a platform and people posting their own content and said, you know, there's a huge gap in the market here, of course, but what about for TV style programming? Because that's the, the mind share has left TV and moved to these uh, digital apps. Right. This is the thing when yeah. you say that, that, you know, no one does appointment programming. Well, there's a reason. It's because no one's watching linear TV where you're in the idea of waiting till eight o'clock to watch a show is bonkers, Well, it, right? it turns out it's not bonkers, actually, because people subscribe to stuff they like. Yep. And I'm sure if you, I'm sure you have a core audience that says, I do want to watch this thing when it's out. And if you tell me it's out at Thursday at 8. But, like, the entire world has moved to on-demand. Of course. And our whole library is always on. And they right. can watch any time. But we do see, you know, the, our uh, holiday movie came out in December. We had 65,000 people waiting for that to go on the live chat on YouTube, which is, you know, appointment viewing. Right. So that means you've got a big audience and they're into it. But it yep. also, it, it, you could have put it on whenever. Oh, no. I'm not here to, watch to espouse linear television. I think that that doesn't yeah. make any sense. But I think for that kind of program, that kind of content, there is a hunger for that that's not being met. So, again, this does remind me a little bit of the uh, terrible acronym, MCNs, right? This was the the first YouTube sort of attempt to professionalize businesses there. And those were in many ways just fancy ad networks. But a lot of them were trying to make their own low-cost programming. Again, thinking of Maker. Maker, Awesomeness, Full Screen. Awesomeness, Full Screen, all those guys. What And then that kind of flamed out. There was one big exit, a couple other smaller ones, and everyone's sort of frustrated with that business. What did you learn from afar watching that business? 
Well, I think that those, as you rightly pointed out, were mostly ad networks. They were collections of hundreds, in some cases thousands of channels where they were really acting as an intermediary. Hey, you, you have a video show. That seems pretty cool. Will you join our ad network and something, totally. something will give you a cut of our cut? In a way, they were more similar to niche our last business. Even though we were doing much more kind of high-fidelity, hands-on campaigns, we were brokers. We were middlemen. And this business is about creating our own consumer brand. And we do some interesting stuff with talent, with advertisers. But at the end of the day, you know, when we look over a quarter, which is about a season of programming, we see 15 million unique viewers tune in. They're watching, you know, 10 videos a month. They're tuning in for up to 10 minutes of video. It's, it's you know, quite uh, engaged as an audience. And, and that's the most important thing for us. I don't think that that many you know, uh, young people went home five years ago and said, oh, mom, I saw the best show on Maker tonight. Yeah. But one of the issues that that I was writing about at the time was that there just was not that much money to go around. Um, in aggregate, and then when you divided it up by view, it got it got very very small. And then if you were a if you were an MCN, and then had to pass that along to a to an individual a creator, like they were getting very small checks yeah. for lots of views. Has that gotten better? I think that there's, well, A, on aggregate, a lot more money going into this ecosystem than yep. there was five years ago just because of the decline of television. and. But it still has not moved over in mass. The the, the advertising dollars always is a long lag between the, the dollars and the eyeballs. Correct. I think there need to be more companies like ours who have videos, who have pieces of content that people watch for more than two seconds before advertisers are going to start bringing their brand advertising over. So we've been talking around it, but your, your business model obviously is advertising. We have a bunch of different revenue streams that are starting to become interesting. I most, you know, I think most of our money when I if I talk to you in December will come from direct advertising spends. Okay, so so we also make money from advertising. So you I've may heard. hear from an advertiser right now, perhaps just someone else who wants to speak to you. We're going to take a quick break, and Rob Fishman and I will be back in a second. Back here with Rob Fishman talking about the advertising business. So I said ads, and you said there's a bunch of different revenue streams. Direct advertising is the biggest one, so that part makes sense, right? You make stuff that is popular reaches a market that people want to be in front of, how else do you make money? Yeah, I mean, currently, so first of all, we make programmatic revenue from the platforms where, you know, we they serve ads against what we're you doing. You put something on YouTube, YouTube mm -hmm. puts a random ad there. Yeah, and we make, you know, in the seven figures in programmatic based on the amount of watch time that we've been able to drive. Uh, we make money on Spotify. We do a lot of original songs, and, you know, similar to YouTube, they pay us a, a share of... So uh, someone who was already a little bit famous comes to you, get more famous and famous enough to put out a song on iTunes or Spotify. Yeah, but even more than that, we actually help them produce and write the songs, and those are the theme songs of our shows, so it, it all is incorporated. We sell uh, uh, merch and products on Amazon. And we have an editorial website where we write articles at brat.com. So we, we're, we're trying to build, you know, sort of a, a studio system that in some ways has a bunch of money coming in in different ways. Uh, we are also, you know, thinking about media sales uh, on and around our own channels and, and selling that as well. And, you know, we're working, starting to work with platform partners more closely to produce content for them. So I actually think, you know, when you have a large core audience and a demographic that is desirable, there are actually a lot of ways to make money. And we're just starting to, you know, scratch that surface. So give me the names of three of your biggest stars. Sure. So, you know, our three, if I look at the last year, uh, Chicken Girls is, was kind of our first and signature hit, and that's Annie LeBlanc, who's, um, you know, been in that show and now a second show of ours. Total Clips is with um, Mackenzie Ziegler, who, uh, you know, was just on Dancing with the Stars Jr. We just launched a new show that just wrapped the first season called Zoe Valentine with Anna Cathcart, who uh, many people probably saw in Tall the Boys I've Loved Before, which was a Netflix feature that did super well. Okay, so I know none of them, but that's good. 
Because if creepy 47-year-old guy knew those stars, <laughs> that'd be a problem. Um, so is the idea that you want to catch these folks when they're on the up, and but not so, not so big that they're going to be headlining Netflix movies of their own? Yeah, I mean, there's— what's the, what, and, and or what's the pitch to them? Are you giving them money up front? Are they getting a percentage of revenue associated with their IP? Are you going to own a piece of them if they move on to MTV or feature films? So to answer the last question, you know, we're not managers or talent agents. We look at ourselves as a network. Uh, you know, we compensate our talent, I think, very well and through a variety of different ways. Most, you know, most talent is, you know, a very simple agreement to come and act and provide services for us. pay you to be in this movie or TV show. For You're sure. do 10 episodes at this much, done. Yeah. And of course, as I mentioned, we work with talent in a lot of different ways. So some people have, you know, different kind of agreements, but that's pretty standard. And for them, you know, I think that there aren't, because of the death of television, and Netflix is, you know, a tough nut to crack. There's not that many shows that go on every year. Yeah. There's not a huge abundance of roles that are necessarily being cast. And so we come to these people and we say, we're going to film this project in four weeks. You're going to be the star of it. You know, we're going to cast some people that you know and love. The shoot's going to be really fun. It's going to come out very soon after that. And it gives you something to, you know, have that's your own. And do any of them or their parents or their managers say, well, that's good, but actually I, I'm, I'm up on the disaggregation of media and I can make low-cost stuff and I can keep 100% of the revenue and I can put my stuff on Instagram. Totally. I, I mean, I, I don't think it's zero-sum. They're not they're not posting less on Instagram or on YouTube because uh -huh. they're working with us. In fact, it's the opposite. It's giving them sort of collateral to talk about on YouTube and Instagram. I think that the disaggregation of media is interesting, but it creates a lot of fragmented entities who are left on their own with very little in the way of resources and, you know, capital to do anything. So I think the goal for an individual creator is to become bigger than themselves. And it kind of reminds me of like the dark Knight when Bruce Wayne says, you know, how do I become a symbol? And I look at, oh, <laughs> you're, that's you're, a, now I'm trying to remember that's that scene. You're giving me a funny look, but I, I, I do think in, I'm just in looking this, off in the distance trying to remember the movie. Well, no, but if you think about talent, really the question is, how do I create leverage? How do I become bigger than just what I can do every day? And so suddenly you have a song that's a hit single. You have a show that everyone knows you from. You wrote a book. Yep. You, and, and that media starts to sort of propel itself into the popular consciousness. And I think that that's where we can help this kind of talent who's just getting started. So again, making low-cost video that's going to be distributed digitally for free, supported by advertising other revenue. You're not the first person to invent this. Um, meanwhile... Jeffrey Katzenberg and Meg Whitman are out speaking at many places, explaining that what the world really needs is high-cost premium video. Um, I'm trying to read your face here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think that that's necessarily wrong. I just think that that exists in everywhere. I mean, that's what Netflix is. That's what Hulu is. That's what Disney Plus is going to but be. But his will be shorter. Yeah, well, I mean, you can hit the pause button anywhere. Yeah. Do you think there is a world for that? There was someone says, I would like to watch this stuff, but if only it was shorter and I had paid for it. I can tell you only my experience, which was we started with four to five minute videos and our audience clamored immediately. Like I'm talking about like 10,000 fans posting Instagram saying, make the episodes longer, tagging us. Now we're like 15, we're almost like a 22 minute standard TV so episode. Basically sitcom length. Mm -hmm. and, and, and what's your cost per minute on average? A few thousand bucks. Cheap. Yeah, but you know, Sorry, it looks inexpensive. Good. No, I mean, look, I think I would hold our stuff up against a lot of what's on Netflix. I also think, you know, it's a little, if you're talking about unscripted or hosted shows, sure, maybe shorter is better. Yeah. For scripted, you know, narrative entertainment, 
I have seen very few examples of where people want to like watch a few minutes on the subway and then pick it up next week. So you and your co-founder Darren, who done niche mm-hmm. uh, together, uh, come out to LA from Twitter. Um, you say, hey, we got this great idea to make content. Does any? And by the way, we want to raise some money to do it. Um, who comes to you and says, this is great, but none of you guys know how to make this stuff. It's one thing to do tech stuff. It's one thing to connect influencers with advertisers, but you guys want to make content. Show me, show me that you can do this. Yeah. So, you know, we, we did work on, uh, helped invest and produce in a, a film that was acquired by YouTube Red before we started that, you know, did fine. And then, uh, you know, our investors uh, placed some trust in us and, you know, <laughs> they can tune in to see how, whether that trust was misplaced or not. But, you know, th- I think that we have built a 60-person team in Hollywood of experienced professionals who know how to, you know, create television content. And we just hired a woman named Jessica Klein, who was actually the showrunner of 90210 in the 90s and has been working on TV ever since. And she leads our writer's room. So you don't need to know how to make a TV show because you can hire those people. Oh, do. no. I mean, they hate me. I sit in the writer's room all day. Really? And yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I find it fine. Just because you're a nerd. Yeah, you're no. You're a media nerd. You like, you like it. I think writing's fun. I yeah. mean, I, it's our core product also, so I care a lot about it. But, you know, we have an amazing woman named Nora who's our head of uh, physical production, a guy named Chase who came from Awesomeness who's our head of post-production. Y- you know, we have a team, and I think it's a little bit like, you know, how do you write software? Like, I've been a product manager, but I'm not, you know, typing in all the code. But you are sitting in the writer's, and they, they must find that very annoying. They must yes. be pleased that you're here in New York right They'll now. They'll be thrilled to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go back in time. So um, I met you on company number two, but let's let's go back. Again, Wikipedia tells me that you were social media guy at HuffPost. Yeah, I had an interesting first job. I actually How'd just, you get to HuffPost? I just actually ran into Ariana a week ago, and she— As one mem- does. Her memory is so sharp, it's scary. She, like, remembers every single thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. But um, I had been at Columbia Journalism School, and I had a few friends who worked there. It had not started that long before, and I went over to do editorial. And it was actually interesting, you know, especially in this moment in time. Facebook had just started approaching news organizations to be like, hey, you know, we want to do news. This is 2010-ish, 11-ish. Yeah, Yeah. 9, 10, really. And I sort of raised my hand because I thought it would be interesting. And I actually went out with Ariana Bunch to Facebook, and we were petitioning for features. But, you know, the New York Times and all these guys were just didn't have tech teams, and they couldn't really work with Facebook. And so folks uh, at, at Huffington Post were willing to kind of chat with them. And so we were right in the middle of when Facebook was getting into all of this. We'd like stuff. Can you make us some stuff? Yeah, totally. It was like but, we but had how, this how did you get to HuffPost? Because uh, this was still a not, – not everyone can get to HuffPost even, even back then, right? Yeah, uh, you know, I, as I, I had a actually, I had a friend, uh, a few friends who worked at the Huffington Post, and then I had met uh, Ken Lear, who ended up investing in all three of my companies. And, you don't just meet Ken Lear; he's not hanging out on the street. Uh, well, he he had actually, I'd met him at the Columbia Journalism School in large part because his daughter Isabel was getting her PhD, and now she started the Dodo. Yeah. If you want to hear a cantankerous interview, go back and find the, the Ken's Ken's visit to this building uh, a couple <laughs> of years ago. It's good. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, so, so Kenny gets you to, I actually had to petition both Kenny and Ariana for a job. Ariana, and then you had to make a fake resume and, and put your Photoshop your head on. So you work at HuffPost for a while. And then at some point you launch your own company, which is, well, I went to AOL and then they had started Lear Ventures, Kenny and Eric, uh-huh. and they kind of helped me start my first thing, which was, you know, we were trying to actually make Facebook apps and create tools for that. We ended up doing our own first, which was almost like a matching dating app on the desktop, which probably wasn't the space to do it because then Tinder launched on phones. But we were only around for about 11 months, and our team went over to BuzzFeed in a sort of aqua-hire deal to work on ad tech there. Right. So when when I'm going to say you built and sold three companies, you're saying, well, the first one's an aqua-hire. Maybe two and a half. Okay, two and a half. But that is still, it's an exit. It's a success. It's your first company that I meet you. You're you're doing you're doing niche. 
which to me seemed like a really good idea at the time because this is one of those, you're going to describe it a different way, but basically you're matching advertisers with people who wanted advertisers to give them money so they could go make Basically, this is what we call an influencer today, right? Yeah. I think you called them back then. People well. say influencer marketing or something. Right. Such. And there's a ton of these things now. If you go to any conference, there's like a ton of people who are doing this. You were fairly early. Yeah. I think we were at the right moment where we weren't the first people, but we were like definitely not near the middle of the pack. And right. now, so Gap wants people who are kind of famous on Instagram. We'll give them a few thousand bucks to wear Gap clothes and take photos of themselves. 100%. I mean, it's, it's interesting both how many people are doing it and still how much of a Wild West it is. Yeah, I, I do want to ask you about that market. But but um, so you, you do this. You've, um, it's kind of software, kind of service. Um, it looks like it's going to be really good business. And then really quickly, you turn around and sell it to Twitter. Yeah, what had ended up happening was Twitter actually was driving us a lot of our business because they owned Vine and they were launching Twitter video and then they had Periscope and advertisers were saying like, cool, how do we make Twitter ads with all of these new like toys that you own? And Twitter was like, I don't know. And so they actually started sending us to these huge brands and we created all these amazing Vines with HP, which became a TV spot, which was like an incredibly successful TV commercial. And as we were out kind of raising more money, they said, you know, would you guys be open to coming here and doing this within Twitter? And we said yes. And, and was there much debate? Like maybe we can Internally? make this bigger on our own. We're this pretty early. If Twitter wants to spend forty or fifty million, whatever the number is, you can tell me the real number. Um, <laughs> it's closer to fifty-five. Fifty-five. Very but, uh, good. You've, you've forever cut down our uh, our net worth on the internet. When you know, when you, whenever you do an M and A story, right? The the people who sell the company want to tell you they had the biggest possible number. Until people who buy it want to give you a smaller number, you, you triangulate. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, I'm sure by the time the stock price uh, went down, it was. <laughs> but so you, $55 million is a big pile of money, right? It's, it's whether or not that's that's all guaranteed up front or not. It's yep. a big pile of money. Um, a lot of people, normal people would say, great, great, because you're in your 20s at the time. Yeah. This is great. I can buy an apartment in New York with this money. That's real money. And other folks, they're, they're weird to me, say, no, 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 we're going to go really big. Was there much of that discussion? You mean in terms of not selling the yeah. company and, and yeah. holding? Look, I, I think that we're fairly rational and opportunistic. And I've heard a lot of stories about people holding on for too long. Twitter was like uh, such a close partner to us and it, it made a lot of sense. And as you said, I was in my 20s and it, it did seem and was a lot of money and I have no regrets about that. Good for you. So you and Darren go to Twitter. You stay and and we've done really well. You know, I will say Twitter's made many times over their money. like As, as their in-house agency, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And there, does, does niche still exist as sure a standalone does. thing within Twitter? Yeah, we have offices in Sao Paulo and London. And, uh, you know, I, I'm happy and, and pleased that it's continued to perform well because you hear about a lot of acquisitions that come in and go quickly to zero. And this was in the era when people were still optimistic about Twitter. Twitter's ad business was on the rise. This is before people equated Twitter with like a cesspool <laughs> it was right full before. of Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what was that experience like internally at, at Twitter? Twitter's a, a really interesting place. I think there's a little bit of a disconnect between like Twitter the product and Twitter the company. And my experience as a user of Twitter never really changed having been there. My experience at Twitter the company, there was a huge amount of executive turnover while we were there. And you know, was, who was running it when when, you, when they bought you? Dick, but left soon Dick after, Costello, and so then Jack came. Dorsey. Yeah, and you know, we were there when Vine went under, and for a lot of kind of. Uh, internal turmoil, and I think it's gotten a lot better from what I understand. Are you, do you still have Twitter stock? Are you allowed to? I do. Allowed to, okay, so you're not, you're not constrained in any way. Um, no, I, I might be. <laughs> do you think they will be able to... Often people say, oh, Twitter's a product problem. 
And if they can just fix the product somehow, they can they can get themselves out of that mess, whatever mess they're in. Do you believe that's true, or do you think there's something else going on? Well, I mean, I'm not totally sure if Twitter's broken, so uh-huh. to speak. I mean, there may be cultural, and uh, there's certainly issues around harassment, and you know. But from a product perspective, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it seems, or rather, if you take a step back and look at user numbers and revenue numbers, from what I know, which is no more than you know, probably less. Like the story seems to be. A decent one this year, is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they 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 go they're growing a little bit in terms mm-hmm. of user numbers. It seems like pretty much everyone in the world has either looked at Twitter and decided this is for me or it's not for me. Right. And when I've talked to people who've been there, like, yeah, that's the thing. It's that that core group's not going to grow much, and yeah. so we got to figure out what business to build around that. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see them address some of the underlying problems, as as I said, the abuse and harassment, and 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 just the kind of tribalism that I think is growing there and continues to grow there is is disturbing to see from the outside. Again, yeah. I don't have any privileged insight in, but you know, I think that tackling those issues is fundamental, not just for them. I mean, you're seeing that at Facebook and, and frankly at YouTube, where you know there are brand safety concerns around comments and you know hate. And I think that the platforms, large Twitter included, really need to do some kind of introspective thinking before they figure out what to build kind of in, around that service. All right. We're going to take a brief break. Be right back. I'm back here with Rob Fishman. I'm trying to get him to be a little less diplomatic and a little more real. You are at company number three. Yep. What did you learn in companies one and two that's changing the way you do business in company number three? I mean, I think what I learned, it's a great question. And my first business is software. Thank you, Rob. <laughs> You're very welcome. my question. Have you been doing this for a while? No. <laughs> my first business, I learned that software was really, really hard. My hard for you or just hard? Hard to make, hard to, hard to build, and hard to do successfully. And I don't think, you know, we didn't really succeed. So just to push a little bit, right? Yep. It seems like there's lots of people who can code. Yep. You don't have to be a technical person to start a company because you can. it's great if you are, but you can also go find those people. Um, they exist all over the world. Prices get cheaper. Was there something specific about software that you, you struggled with? I think that, well, first of all, this was, you know, 10 years ago. Uh-huh. So it was a little bit less turnkey, but just that... You know, it's it's there's a difference between drawing a picture of a house and building a house, and the devil is in the details. And I think that, you know, I was going to say my second, my first company, I learned that building software is hard. My second company, I learned that selling advertisements is really hard. And this company, I've learned that production is really hard. And I would say that the lesson I took from all of those is that building a business is really, really hard. Yeah, it turns out making a thing that were that didn't exist prior is, is difficult work. Yeah, I mean, there's this myth of like some entrepreneur somewhere who's kind of like sitting in and letting the cash roll in. And, you know, I think something that I say a lot is just in the weeds and like Darren will forward me an email or I'll forward him one. Is your co-founder? Yeah, where we're just like laying out CPMs and deliverables or we're talking about script notes on page four. It's like, you know, you're just so in the weeds of whatever you're doing. And I, I bring up software or advertising or production as, you know, kind of core competencies that you need to develop as a business. But, you know, no matter what you're doing, like it, it just is really, it feels very difficult and thorny. Um, we've already talked about money a little bit. Let's talk about it some more. So $55 million, give or take. Then you guys worked at Twitter and got paid well to work there. It seems like if you have a comfortable living, comfortable slash you're rich, um, it would be a lot harder to do a third company because they are so hard. And you go, I could just take meetings at the peninsula or whatever one does. Well, I'm not that rich. Thank you. <laughs> I, uh, so, so I have a few friends in New York who call me L.A. rich. <laughs> <laughs> Which All I right. think is pejorative, but I'm not sure. Uh, um, how do we define? All right, like you own a we, car. Yeah, you own a car instead of having a driver. Oh, I I only know one person who has a driver. Who's that? 
Well, I, 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 I don't think I'm going to, you know, Jason Blum has like a mobile office yes. with a van. So I, I don't That's know if I, someone must drive it though. I bet Jason drives it himself too. He Walking probably the does. And doing the deals. Yeah. Um, but still, like it's, it's, it's one thing to be young and hungry and it's another thing to be a little full because, because you're rich. Yeah. I mean, first of all, like I don't look at myself as, I mean, at least by the people who you probably interview by their standards, I don't look at myself as rich and I look at myself as very hungry. Um, I'm working harder on this company, I think, than I worked at my last company. Here, another way of putting it, how do you motivate yourself at company number three? I I mean, I'm just incredibly engaged in what we're doing and I don't have anything else to do. (laughs) Because you're 32. Yeah. I I mean, you know. Married? No. No kids? I have nothing else in my life. Mortgage? Desolate. I have a mortgage. All right. So that's that's a little bit motivating. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, look, I, I think I'm really excited about what we're like. I get up every day. I'm excited. And, you know, I, I've never, you know, money's obviously exciting to me, but I'm, you know, I, when I graduated college, and you'll remember this, everyone I knew went to work at Goldman Sachs. And, you know, I didn't find that exciting because I don't think making money for the sake of making money is super exciting. I think doing something interesting and as a re- reward, getting money is, is interesting. I knew literally zero people who went to Goldman Sorry, well, you'll remember, I, I meant to say more, you'll remember like 08, 09 when everyone was working as an investment banker kind of I do remember around that. New York. When I, I do remember when the tech people in New York would say, we can't get talent because they're all working at right. the banks. Exactly. And so, you know, there was that, that was for me when I graduated college and there was that moment when like iBanking was the cool thing and now it's, you know, tech, but yeah. it wasn't. So where do you go with this thing? There, there are a bunch of media companies that aren't going to buy BuzzFeed or Vice right now. Um, but they have been buying, like the Viacoms of the world have been buying smaller digital media companies. I can imagine them knocking on your door periodically. Is that happening? We're not talking to anyone right now about raising money or selling the company. But, you know, I, when I look out at the landscape, I think that there is a great rebundling happening. And, you know, probably in a few years from now, you'll see Disney Plus and Warner and NBC and Viacom having largely what they had before, except those offerings will be consolidated and delivered over the top instead of, you know, through cable. And we're in many ways, and maybe we'll grow grow up from this, but a TV network. And I think we will need to be bundled one day. And that could mean that we have just, carrier Just tease piece. it up. Bundle meaning? Bundle meaning a collection of TV networks and shows. So you, you will be one of them. Look, maybe In we'll, a bundle that, say, just for argument's sake, that Viacom owns. Uh, you know, I think that there's a bunch of paths. We could be you know, uh, bundled in three or four different networks, or sorry, three or four different bundles because they all want to carry, you know, it'll be more like regional networks, which can all simultaneously carry you. Maybe we'll raise a bunch more money and become our own bundle. So you don't think there's room sort of long-term for you to be a standalone thing that people go to on their own or pay for directly? Um, you think eventually this stuff all gets swallowed up into, into bigger companies? Uh, you know, not to speak of ourselves singularly here, uh-huh. but I don't believe the future is a la carte. I, I, I don't think selling consumers 19 different things for two ninety nine is the future, and I think most people probably would agree with that. So, most people being consumers or people on the, on the supply I don't, side of the I business? think consumers don't want it. I think, you know, companies don't want to be that. I think that— So I hear this a lot, yeah. by the way, that it's, everything's got to get rebundled, and it makes sense if you're on the Viacom side, right, because you like mm-hmm. the bundle. And then there's lots of logical reasons why bundles are a good deal. On the other hand, 
I'm spending my own money. There's a couple things I value a lot. I'll pay for them. Let's say it's HBO. Let's say it's Brat. I'll pay for that. Everything else I'm going to get for free because I don't really care. Or I'm going to buy a very small bundle. Some stuff will be in there. Mm -hmm. um, and whenever I have people saying, oh, we've got to get the bundle back, it's people who are basically in the bundle business already, whether it's Brian Stelter at CNN or anybody else who sort of can't imagine the world being atomized. But I think it is. And I think there's a ton of stuff that comes for free from a YouTube or an mm -hmm. Instagram or whatever, and that satisfies a lot of people. Well, I think that's a great point. I think it's incumbent on the bundlers to bundle assets that you want, right? If Warner is HBO plus a bunch of things that you don't care about, then that's a bad bundle. If it's HBO plus 10 other things that you watch as much as HBO, right, that's a good bundle. And I don't think that they're, I think the bundlers are in the best place to bundle, if you will. And Say bundle some more. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to write about this too. Bundles. This, is this is good. This is good mental exercise. <laughs> it's for me. bundles of fun. Uh, no, no, no. But I, I, look, surely, like, look at iTunes over the last 10 years, which I don't, you know, Apple's about to relaunch their whole platform yeah. because this sort of a la carte, buy what you want thing, I don't think is really what the consumer wants. I mean, what is Netflix and chill? It's like staring into the black mirror and deciding <laughs> what's going to come so on So Netflix next. is the bundler, right? Yeah. In this case, so, but it's 10 bucks. Mm -hmm. And they give me a bunch of stuff. I'm not quite sure what's in it, but that's okay. And that's one of the things I'm going to buy. Yep. Um, but the idea that I'm going to go out and then buy a bunch more of those, that's I don't think, I think you're going to buy a bunch more. I think you might buy three or four of them. But I don't think that, I think that'll still be less than your, what you used to spend on, on you know, cable and you'll get sports and news as part of one or two or three of them. And maybe someone will bundle the bundlers to add yeah. some more bundles on and you'll pay I do think fee. it's going to be brutal for a bunch of the existing companies when they learn, all right, in the new economics, when people actually do actually have a choice to not take what you're offering, yep. um, well, What's going to be brutal is they're going to realize that much of what is in their existing offering, no one cares about. Yeah. And that's why TV's failing, like, largely, is because you have 100 channels and people care about two of them. It's funny. I just started getting uh, Hulu Live yep. for, now. Nah, I think it's 45 bucks. It's good. Yeah. Uh, and then they say, oh, you can buy some other stuff. So there's a Spanish language bundle. All right, that makes sense. Not, a, not applicable for me. And then they, there's something called, like, an entertainment bundle. And it's just a weird collection of channels that I cover this business. I'm vaguely familiar with. And I just cannot imagine a single person going, I need that. Well, we're I need in, that on yeah. top of the 45 bucks I'm spending. <laughs> right. I mean, we're in that sort of awkward stage where people are putting out their, you know, pimply offerings that the, you, the leftovers. Yeah, like this you is might stuff that, want stuff they used to jam into a traditional cable distribution. Right. And and I think that these will be skinnier or leaner. I don't get me wrong. I don't think that this is a reshuffling of the deck. I think these will be new decks and frankly, the main reason I'm optimistic and I'm excited about what we're doing is cuz we're creating new IP. I think too many of these bundles are about taking you know, shelved stuff and and reoffering them to customers. Right. So part of your pitch, right, is to distributor X. Hey, you used to pay Disney for all this stuff, but at, well, actually, Disney's still going to be Disney. Yep. <laughs> you used to pay Nickelodeon. Name your name your youth brand. Um, ours is better, cheaper, and relevant. Yeah. Totally. And and I, I, I that's why I think that th those are two separate things. I I agree with you a thousand percent that this isn't taking the TV channels, cutting them up resorting them for digital. It's it's creating new networks, new IP, new shows, but offering them as I think it will be part of bundles. Who has most impressed you in Hollywood? Who gets digital? Like which of the studios? Per studio, person? You know, it's really interesting. I, I went over to YouTube a few years ago and I sat in a room with a bunch of folks who were from Hollywood. I just got in there. Mm -hmm. And they showed two slides. They first said, who are all these people? And it was a bunch of faces. And I raised my hand and no one else in the room did. It was the top 20 YouTubers in the world. And then 
they said, the second slide said, you know, something like, what are you doing on YouTube? And no one was doing anything on YouTube. And, you know, there is a still an incredible disconnect between where the eyeballs are, which is on digital platforms like YouTube, and what Hollywood, who's in theory the, you know, nerve center of creation, is doing. They don't speak really They at will all. still tell you if you talk to a TV network person or movie person and you bring up a YouTube or mm-hmm. a Netflix, they'll go, yeah, they're popular, but the quality isn't very good. Right. And you go, well, people are watching it, so they like it. Well, make some stuff. Good. So, right, on the one hand, you want to yell at the Hollywood people for not creating... Uh, assets and programming that will resonate with this huge audience. But on the other hand, you want to yell at YouTube and say, listen, if you guys are going to pay $4 CPMs, how do these people fund their projects to put on YouTube? Right, or Mark Cuban, as he said, look, with all their resources, they should do a much better job of getting breakout hits. Right, so the only people who are making high-quality, high-ish quality things for YouTube are companies like mine who have convinced venture capitalists to give them tens of millions of dollars. Otherwise, there's there's no business model yet. You have uh, to go sell your own ads and do all this stuff. How long are the VCs going to give you tens of millions of dollars? Uh, you should ask the next person on your podcast, whoever that is. I will do that. <laughs> Rob, thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Thanks to you guys for listening. We love that you listen. If you like it, tell someone else about it. There's a funny note here that says, you can follow me on Twitter at Peacock. You knew that. Rob, where can people find you online? Uh, well, I'd prefer they watch our shows. Well, not everyone, right? You don't want creepy 47-year-old guys watching your shows. We're, you know, not good we're for family four-quadrant programming. All right. That's great. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Vox Media, which brings those sponsors to you so you can listen to Recode Media for free. Joel Robbie edits this show. Gold Arthur and Eric Johnson produce it. They're all great. This is Recode Media. We will see you next week.